Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. My name is Nylon. At Duet, we pride ourselves on being the original studio management software for independent music teachers who want to focus on nurturing students, not running a business. Our dedication to teachers remains unwavering. Music is our passion and music teachers are our heroes. In a world that can seem heavy and overwhelmed with challenges, music is the great antidote. Teachers are the enablers, the incubators of future artistic expression. At Duet, we do everything we can to encourage your work, treat you with dignity, and express our gratitude for what you give the world. Striving to be a great teacher is a lifelong pursuit. And at Duet, we want to be your partner for continuing education along the way. This podcast will introduce you to your peers and the masters in your industry so that you can learn and be inspired just as you inspire others. I am so excited to have with me today Noreen Wenjen, who is a nationally recognized piano teacher and author of Two Year Waitlists, an entrepreneurial guide for music teachers, and online courses such as Entrepreneurial Crash Course for Music Teachers and the Ultimate Studio Policy for Music Teachers. She's past president for the California Association of Professional Music Teachers, otherwise known as capmount.org, also the MTNA Southwest Division Director-Elect, and Torrance Business Person of the Year. Wenjin Piano Studios was recently voted the best music studio by the South Bay's Best 2001, which is sponsored by the Daily Breeze and the Daily Beach Reporter newspapers. Noreen, thanks so much for being with me here today. Thank you so much, Nyland. It's a pleasure to be here today with you. So we're going to start with some questions that I ask all of our podcast guests. And that's basically, you know, what was your musical training as a child? And how did you stay motivated to practice? What was your experience as a, as a young piano student? So it was funny because I actually came into getting piano lessons almost accidentally, because when I first started, I was with some neighbor friends and we went out on a play date and they said, hey, I have this piano class. Do you want to come join me? And I said, oh, okay, I'll come join you. And it was at a city college where you plugged in headphones and then there was the main teacher at the piano. And after one of those lessons, I just fell in love with it. I thought it was so cool and you could hear all the music and we were making music immediately. So I came back home immediately and I said to my mom, I really want to have um, piano lessons. So my mom really um, worked to kind of seek out a piano teacher. She didn't, you know, go back then. It was like the yellow pages. She didn't do that. She did word of mouth. She sought out from her friends um, who they thought was the best music teacher in the area. And um, she came to this uh, music teacher, Joanna Hodges, and a lot of the students in the area took from her. She was probably one of the largest uh, piano studios in Southern California because she had eight assistant teachers. And we were able to get in with one of the assistant teachers, um, Nancy Perry Rohr. And that's how my piano lessons got started. How old were you? So I was um, five years old when I got started. And uh, I had my first piano competition when I was five and a half. And I just fell in love with it. I just fell in love with being on stage 
And in her studio, um, in Joanna Hodges' studio, as well as my assistant, my my teacher Nancy Rohr's studio, there were a lot of competitive pianists. So it was very natural for everybody to try out competitions, no matter what level, you know, as, as long as they felt comfortable, even if they were very young. And it was such a positive, fun experience with not a lot of pressure. It was just kind of like we perform so often. Let's go out and show what you can do and, you know, meet up with your your friends at the competitions. So it was a very friendly, positive experience for all of us. Yeah, that's that's fascinating that you really took to it that quickly, because I think, you know, big question for for teachers is how to keep their students motivated. Right. And and there are people like you, there are students like you who just fall in love with it immediately um, and who don't really need a lot of that additional encouragement. Uh, but I know that your path to becoming a music teacher from our past conversations was uh, you, you went you went through through a sort of technology professional career as well. Tell us about that and how you ultimately ended up being a piano teacher. So as much as I loved performing, um, by the way, I didn't always love practicing. So for me, the competitions and the constant performing kept me practicing because my teacher had so many of these performance workshops that we were always performing. So as I uh, was going to college, um, I decided just I decided that I did not want to go the music route because I thought that it was going to be very difficult to find a job later. And so I actually was going to study business. And at the last minute, right before school started, I went to uh, UC Santa Barbara. I said, boy, but I cannot not have music lessons because it was such a large part of my life. So when I went into the missions office and I said, how can I sign up for music lessons? They said, oh, well, you have to pay out of pocket unless you're a music major. And I thought, well, maybe I could become a music major. So I actually changed. I auditioned that week, became a music major. And I thought, you know, I'll become a double major or I'll, you know, I, I can maybe I can change it later if I wanted. And I never wanted to change out of it. So that's how I ended up graduating with my piano performance degree. Um, and then even after that, I thought, well, I've got a performance degree, but how am I going to make a great solid living? Can I do that as a musician? I really wasn't sure. So I actually worked in sales and marketing um, for a few years um, and I loved it. I, I worked for Nissan Foods. I worked for my sister's startup company also, Aquint, which um, is now a Fortune 500 company. And I got sent out to all these big corporations and I got to try out graphic design, marketing, and, um, and, and learn a lot about how to start up a business. And so it, ironically, after that, I really still was missing my music piece. You know, it just wasn't checking off all the boxes to me to, to be in business, to even though it was creative. So I decided, okay, well, um, maybe I should go back to school and get a master's in performance. And so my teacher, Joanna Hodges, said, well, you know, I'm having this seminar. These kids are coming from um, internationally, and I'm preparing them for a three-week seminar in, uh, in performance and pedagogy and, and very intensive study. So why don't you come help me with it? And I said, okay, I'd love to do that. So I came to this piano seminar thinking I was going to stay for three weeks in Vancouver, Washington, and um, I ended up staying for four years. I became a piano teacher there um, because I, as soon as I started teaching, I thought I just 
loved it. I mean, and, and I was fortunate in that my first start, she literally handed me 10 students because she always had this huge wait list. And she said, here's 10 students. Why don't you just teach a little? I will, you know, oversee all of it. Um, I will help you along. I will, you know, I'll give them, I will give you critique as a teacher. So she kind of, uh, it was kind of the old school apprenticeship, which you don't see much anymore. Um, and she oversaw all my students. We'd play in uh, performance workshops and she would give feedback, not only to the students, but on my teaching. And she's the one that helped me get nationally certified after only, I think, two and a half or three years of teaching, which has been very significant for me having that um, being so young at the time, being in my 20s. Yeah, that really speaks to the importance of having a mentor, right? That apprenticeship that you mentioned, because, uh, you know, there are, of course, pedagogy degrees and, and performance degrees. But I think just like any profession, it really helps to have somebody that believes in you and is willing to give you that that you know, real life experience like you had. That's fantastic. Tell us about your studio today. How many years have you been teaching? How how big is it? Um, I know it's such a prestigious studio in your area there. How And we're going to talk about how you develop that value in your studio, but but just give us some stats on your studio now so we know uh, we know the size of it and, and what you're doing. All right. Thank you. Thank you for those uh, kind compliments. So I've been teaching now, um, I think I'm probably on my 28th year of teaching, um, accidentally teaching. I call myself the accidental piano teacher, uh, but I just, I really do love it. And um, for many years, I kept a, a, a big studio. So over 45 students, uh, different times, I actually had um, assistant teachers and I always kept dual studios. So I, my home is in Torrance and I always had a second studio in Seal Beach out of uh, my mother's home. And I would just kind of travel uh, back and forth. So I used to teach, when I first started teaching, I used to teach almost seven days a week. And I was also doing theory classes for Joanna's students as well. So for about 60 students on the weekends, when I, when I wasn't teaching my own students, I was holding theory classes. Then I cut it back to six days. Um, and then I cut it back to uh, at some point where I wanted uh, just to have a little more time to do writing so I could write my book and write my teaching method and all those things. So um, so now I, I choose to have a smaller studio because I am, um, con well, I do a little more in mentoring. So I spend a lot of time volunteering. Um, I'm the past president, you know, for for our California state organization, and I'm still on the board for that. And I love working also with the National Association. So, I, you know, um, it's impossible to to teach a load of like 45 students and also really be able to give back to all these people and all these organizations and donate the t your time. So I've kind of cut shaved off a few days here and there so I can spend a lot of time um, helping other teachers now at, the, at this point in my career. But I do keep like 25 students and um, and I, I do a lot of things uh, on the side. <laughs> um, you know, I do, I've written a couple of, of uh, I was a participant in another larger group of books called The Power of, uh, the Power of Why, Why 10 Musicians Created um, a Program. And I just like working on projects to help other teachers. It's, it's a big focus as well as, as uh, keeping my studio competitive. Um, and I, not all the students are in competitions, but by saying competitive, I, I mean that 
I like that there's a big draw to my studio because I do the things that I like to do. I like to do it my way. And I found a way to connect students of any level. So it doesn't matter if they're beginning students or they're advanced students or they they play several instruments or different genres. I think it's just important to really increase the breadth of your students, um, the depth of your studio, and the locations and the areas where they are willing to travel from. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I mean, I think, you know, competitive can mean the standard that you establish. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, the, the, that expectation that you have for your students and, and what it means to be a part of your studio. Just to clarify, are you exclusively focused on classical piano? Yes, mainly classical piano, but I wouldn't say exclusively because um, what I love about some of the repertoire that's coming out and some of the programs, there's a real emphasis in bringing in different styles and different genres of music. So I find myself, you know, teaching blues pieces and jazz pieces. And while that's not my area of expertise, I'm kind of learning along, you know, with the students and I'm really broadening, you know, my own musical background and I'm, I'm enjoying that. Um, I'd like to, I love piano concerti. So you can see I have (laughs) a few pianos here and I love doing all the accompaniment and ensemble. So it's really a a big part of my studio in the summer. Everybody picks out some kind of a duet or concerto, even if they're, you know, no matter what level they're in. And we, we perform those in, um, in one of the Catmount piano auditions, which will be coming up in uh, October, November. October, November. I love it. You, so you've already shared with us a number of things that you do uniquely in your studio that kind of guiding, guiding principles, but do you have a particular teaching philosophy that you subscribe to? Do you have a, a mission statement or, or a series of, of guiding values that you like to use as a teacher? Well, I'll tell you something now in, that I can say, looking back in hindsight and in retrospect, when I started teaching, you know, your guidelines are formed by uh, your impressions and, and what you've experienced with other teachers. And um, my background, I'm so different from other teachers because, you know, uh, just my background is very different. And, you know, I, I was it wasn't like I always thought that I was going to do it. And so I kind of I think I'm because of the entrepreneurism, I like to do things um, my way. So what's funny is that when I first started teaching, I was much stricter. Mm. I and, and you mean, I think it's a great idea for every teacher to keep a journal of some sort. You know, it might be a digital journal now, but to write down every day, like something or maybe a weekly plan, goals, things that you want to broaden, targets, things, you know, whether it's um, by next year, I want to make X amount of dollars or have X amount of students or publish X amount of books. I think it's very important that teachers take time for themselves, not to just run themselves ragged teaching, but to think about how can they stay creative and keep it exciting for themselves as a teacher. But then as I started teaching more and more, I I mean, I feel like I was a little, you know, not that I was ever rigid um, and I always loved working with all ages, but I was just trying to be by the books and do it maybe how other people had taught me. And um, I became much more flexible over the years. And so 
to the point where I would get a phone call and they would say, um, you know, I have these two kids and, um, you know, I know, I, so I taught very young children from very young, very early on. When back when the method books only really started for teaching children about six and seven years or, or more, I was teaching kids that were six and seven, but they had younger siblings that were three and four. And then the parents would say, Do, could you teach them? And I'd say, well, I can try. There wasn't any material. So that's why I had to develop my own material for that age. And I would even get calls. I got a call one time and, and a lovely lady said, I have two children and they're blind. Um, we, we drive an hour and it's just killing me in traffic. You're much closer. Would you be willing to, to teach them? And I said, you know, I don't know Braille and I have never taught anybody that's blind, but I'll give it a shot. Wow. And I taught them for like five years and they, I learned more from them <laughs> than they learned from me in terms of life, positivity, and not setting limits on anything. Yeah. I mean, that we all, everybody in the studio, they, we learned so much on, um, you know, the kids, if they would complain and say, you want me to do that 20 times jumping? Um, I would say, do you want to want me to tell you how the, my students who are blind, how they do it? And they'd say, <laughs> no, I would say, they do it by muscle memory, probably 200 times until they can just go from one to the other. And the kids would go like, wow, okay, no problem. Let yeah. me get to that 25 times, no yeah. problem. Um, you know, yeah. so I opened myself up and I've taught a lot of kids with special needs, even a student that was, uh, was deaf, um, you know, a, a gentleman with autism. Like I just kind of would try to accept whatever challenge it was. Now, I didn't make any promises like I can turn you into this or that, you know, but I said, I'm, I would love to try to teach you like, you know, right. It's a, it's a two way thing. Let's see how it goes. Right. Oh, so I, I think that was enough. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I love that you, that, that the philosophy you shared really is focused on your personal growth as a teacher, not necessarily what you always want to be pushing out or giving to your students. Right. You're, you're talking about how you as a teacher can find fulfillment from your profession and from what you spend so many hours doing. So I love that. So let's transition a little bit today. The, the, the title of our, our conversation today are, is how to command value and higher teaching rates from your music studio. So, you know, as, as we know, music teachers are often trained in teaching techniques and have a mastery of their instrument as you did with your, your piano performance degrees. But uh, they're less often trained in running a business, which is an essential part of being an independent music teacher. And you're a strong example of a teacher who has embraced the entrepreneurial aspect of running a music studio because of those unique opportunities you had when you were young and right out of school where you said you had marketing experience, you had sales experience, and little did you know that that was going to inform <laughs> your, uh, your, your studio so much. But you know, having that entrepreneurial spirit means taking a serious look at your studio's finances, its reputation in the community, the value that you're offering to your clients. And so you know that making sure you're being compensated for the skills you bring as a teacher and the impact you make in your students' lives is a continuing process. You've talked about teaching for 28 years and you're you're still trying new things and changing. And some of these things have come from trial and error. So we're, I'm really excited to learn from you today about what you've learned in this process of going through your own years of building a studio. And I'm interested in this, this idea of commanding value, first of all. What, what do you mean? How do you define value when you talk about it in this regard? 
So value to me is anything of importance, of worth. It can be something unique and something special. So if you're finding value in a music studio or a music teacher, it's what can I bring to the student that is special? Like it's much more than just my exact time sitting at the piano and teaching somebody. So it's, it's really important to, first of all, write out what you think is valuable, what's in your studio, things that might be obvious to you, like um, the time that you spend, you know, correcting theory papers outside of, of teaching or, you know, um, uh, there's a lot of value in, in, I would say, education overall, educational benefits. So we have to get people out of the mindset that teaching music is a hourly wage type of job because it's not. When we stand up from our instrument, we do so many things for many hours to prepare for things, to sign students up for competitions. And uh, we have to let people know all these things that we do on the side because otherwise people will call you up and just want to know how much you charge like they're, you know, buying a roll of toilet paper. Like they, you need to know that there's so much value in individuality in every music teacher and every music studio. And so, but we don't always put out that information. So you'll see on most teachers' websites, they'll just talk about what they've done in the past. They'll have their background, their music degrees, and then, you know, not much else. So um, on my website, you can go to my website, wenjinpiano.com, and I have a huge list of everything that goes on in my studio. I have um, two monthly performance workshops, uh, eight times a year, maybe it's nine, um, plus recitals. And so what, it's funny if you ask some of the students, especially the younger ones, what they like about the studio, they'll say, oh, you know, the lessons are nice, but I love the piano workshops. That's because we make it fun. We make it um, not stressful. And because they're done all the time, the pressure is off. So imagine you're on a soccer team and you practice every day, every month, all year, and you only have one chance in a year to play an official game. That's very stressful. So when teachers say to me, well, I have my one recital at the end of the year, I'm like, oh, you're poor students. I mean, they have one chance to show off the, and it's usually only one to two pieces, right? But my students, because they have workshops every month, they learn between 10 and 12 memorized pieces plus a concerto every year. But because we're performing so often, um, they have chances to make a mistake. You know what? Didn't go the way you liked it. Guess what? There's another one in three to four weeks. So it really um, helps the students to build their confidence. Plus, I have them announce their pieces out loud. So they're practicing public speaking. Um, but one of the big pieces is that I'm not just looking at that studio thinking I'm going to teach them, you know, and for the ex for, you know, a short amount of time. My my students typically stay with me from whenever they start until they graduate as a senior in high school. So some of them, the last three have been with me for 14 years. I've literally watched them grown up and I've written their college recommendations for them. And that's an important piece that people don't know, right? I mean, I've affected these kids. I've even gotten kids into colleges where 
one time one was rejected and I wrote a recommendation and they appealed and she got into UCLA, which is not easy to get into. I mean, um, and, and several of them had very large scholarships because of it. And it's because I follow the whole student and when they leave the studio, we're still connected. So some of them are going on to medical school. And like, I just saw them before they, I, you know, I met them over the summer, you know, and it's just, you know, I'm still their mentor. I think I'll always be their mentor. And I think that's an really important piece. It's much more than, you know, just the music. It it spills into other areas of life. I love this idea that you're not providing a transactional service, right? There isn't an equation of like a number of hours equal a number of dollars, right? This relationship you're building with both the parents and the students is one of mentoring. Like you said, you, you are a part of that student's upbringing and building their character and building their grit and resilience. And I know as a parent, you know, the teachers that my children have had in their lives have been hugely influential in the teachers I've had in my life, not just in teaching them technique or how to play a piece. Right. But as you're saying, really as a force, as an, another adult presence in their life, um, that they're, they're going to take the skills and the character that you've helped them build. So I love that idea of getting, helping teachers sort of see that role in a, in a broader sense and not just in such a transactional formulaic role. So, so let's, let's use that as a foundation. Um, you know, we've talked about how to assess value in your piano studio. I've, I saw that that section on your website. I love that section that you're talking about where you go through all of the extra work that you do as a teacher in these children's lives that might be going on behind the scenes. That is such an important, um, important uh, value that you add to your, your students and their parents. So, so what kinds of studio policies and procedures command value among clients. What? Very, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say a very long and thorough one. Well, tell us um, about it. Cause I know that you in particular are known for your studio policies. Um, and so those must be really important to this process that you're talking about of commanding value. I think it's important in many ways. It, I think for professionalism, you need to, um, put everything out there because if you don't tell people what is included, then they don't know the value that they're getting. So my studio policy is very long. It's nine pages. It's so long that I created a course on it. And um, I will tell you that what it does every, every year that I found that there was a miscommunication or a problem, say, you know, someone was behind on paying or someone never paid, or um, if there was any issue with anything, if students didn't like the way something was worded or they misunderstood, I just added it on to the studio policy until now everything is clear as day and everybody gets sent the studio policy ahead of time. And I have them re-sign it annually as a reminder. Um, one thing that's different about mine is it's not just the parents that sign it. Yes, minors, you know, it's not like a court thing, you know, to have them sign their name, but I have a little small section and students sign their their commitment because the lessons are for them. 
So if you only have the transactions between the parents and the teacher, you're not including the most important piece here, the students. So I will always make sure that we, we, I tell the students like, this is for you. You're not doing this for your parents. Now, legally, they have to sign it all, but I want you to know that your part in it is, you know, the practice, the completion of the lessons, you know, and I, you know, I add in um, the performances with the performance workshops and even like keeping your nails cut short, because how many times have we been at the piano where we're just looking at those nails? Going, <laughs> There's no way you're going to get that effective technique with those nails. So uh, I just try to spell everything out and I try to make it easy for the parents. So everything is digitized. Every on, all the online signatures, it would take me days to track down 25, 30, 40, you know, um, e- email uh, applications legally signed if I didn't make it very efficient. So I try to make it efficient for myself and, and efficient for them. So that's a big piece of it. And there's just a lot of different sections in it. Um, student expectations, uh, how my tuition is um, billed, you know, late fees. When do the late fees occur? How early are there cancellations? For me, no lesson cancellations. And I know a lot of teachers do lesson cancellations, but I will tell you that if I cancel on any of my doctors at all, I pay for it. Even if they don't ask me, I I just think it's, it's a consideration of their time and value. So I tell the students right up when they first start lessons, I'm sorry, but my schedule is so packed that I cannot, um, I, I cannot offer to have makeup lessons. Unless you can offer something to every student in your studio, do not do it because that's unfair, right? That's like, you know, giving priority to your oldest child versus your younger one saying one person could have this and another person can have something else. So whatever I do for one student, I do for all students. So if I don't have time to make up 25 or 30 lessons in one week, because you know, you, you need to be able to do that if you offer it, um, then it's better not to have any cancellations. And I'll tell you with that rule, I have very few cancellations. <laughs> sure. They will cancel all their other activities before they cancel their piano lessons because they know they're going to pay for it anyways. Well, and I'll just put in a plug here because, you know, our, the teachers that will be listening to this are Duet subscribers and Duet helps teachers enact these policies, Right around billing and cancellation and scheduling. So so what, let's get into the nitty gritty of tuition and, and how much to charge. What sort of market research do you suggest a teacher do when he or she is perhaps just starting out on how much to charge for a lesson? Different, different lengths of lessons. Um, I assume there's some sort of you know, a competitive analysis or it depends on your geography, how many other teachers are in your area. What what would you suggest that a new teacher do to fairly assess the value of their studio and then charge based on that value? That's a great question. I have a whole chapter dedicated on in the book because it's it's um, it's interesting because most teachers don't like to post their rates. Mine, um, what I charge is on my website. You guys, everybody's welcome to go and, and look at it. Um, but I think the mistake that teachers make in setting up their um, their rates is that they literally will ask their one friend that they know because nobody posts their rates 
you know, oh, what do you charge? Okay, well, I'm just starting out and and you've, you know, been teaching 10 years more. So maybe I should just charge half of that. They start with a number and they don't realize that number they've chosen is, you know, less than what is often, you know, less than what, uh, like people get paid babysitting or tutoring. So they are not looking at, they're just picking a random number. And that's not a way to select, um, basically your salary that's going to affect the rest of your career. So you, I guess what helped me was because I worked outside of um, teaching music, when I worked in sales and marketing, um, I kind of knew what a starting salary was for someone out of college in a professional career. So I would say it's important to, get to um, think about what your background is in 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 relation to other professional careers. Now, if you think about it, most of us, if we've been training since we were five and six years old, we're better, more trained and highly trained than most, you know, doctors, lawyers, I mean, you name it, because we have literally been building this career. Maybe it's not specifically for teaching, but we've been learning about it for a very, very long time, right? And we've also been investing in lessons and learning um, and ourselves paying out for lessons to become better at this for a very long period of time. So I think it's important for for people to look at different occupations in their area and look at professional occupations and see what the going rate is around there. But I also think that people should just decide what they want to make. And if you have a wait list, that's why I wrote the book to your wait list, because if you have a wait list and you know you can always fill those spots, your wait list will tell you whether or not you've pushed it too far or not. Because if you have nobody on that wait list, then you, you're not commanding, um, you, you know, there's something that you're not creating demand for, right? That means that someone, they're finding other teachers, they don't, they don't find your studio valuable enough to wait in line for it. But, right. um, but at, I that, mean, at I, that price point, right? So you're suggesting there's kind exactly. of a balance between like the value exactly. that you're offering to the community and to these potential clients versus how much you're asking them to pay for that. Something is out of balance if you don't have that demand. Exactly. So, but the way I started my pricing, I actually didn't have a choice because when I started teaching under in Joanna's as part of her studio, she required that I could only charge 50% of what she was charging. And she was for her level of expertise was way undercharging. So I literally, I started out, I think teaching, I think she probably, this is back in the, I don't know, nineties or something. Um, I think I was charging, she charged like $60 per hour, which she charged that for like probably 10 or 20 years. And I think I started my rates at back then $30 an hour. But when I moved my studio back to California and it was just me, I was, and I did the numbers and I'm trying to look at rent. I said, I can't survive on that. Even teaching 45 students, there was no way it wasn't going to cover. I live in Southern California. It's, it's close to, you know, close to the, the beach. It's one of the highest, you know, areas for, um, for housing. So, um, what I did was I was able to very quickly fill my studio. Uh, I think I, I had like 35 or 40 students within a, a short amount of time. And I just told them all, I said, you know what? I really have underpriced it. And if I want to continue to become a music teacher, I'm going to have to do a kind of a steep rate increase this year. But then every year afterwards, it will be less. 
But notice I said every year afterwards, because most teachers do not raise their rates annually. But what about cost of living? Like everything goes up, inflation. If you don't raise them every year, you're actually losing, you know, losing money. So, um, you know, it was, it was a little, I thought at that point, gosh, this is a little dicey. I mean, maybe I'm going to lose all my students. Well, guess how many students I lost? None. None. Yeah. Not one, not one, nobody. I mean, I had somebody who did ask, wow, that was a little bit uh, kind of a higher percentage. But once I explained it, they were fine with it. Yeah. So yeah. I think that you, it, you, we should go almost backwards from that. Figure out your expenses, figure out what you need to survive, not just survive in your area, area, but to survive with a professional income and then see what you need to do to kind of fill that gap. Do you need to raise your rates and teach more students? Like, you know, you kind of, it's, it's, it's a moldable model, right? It's not, and it's not a one fit for everybody. Um, But I I eventually raised it to now where I'm probably um, at least double of what most uh, teachers, uh, most teachers charge in my area. And even teachers who are, I would say much older and maybe have many more degrees, I probably charge more than them. But so my other point is that um, you, it's not based on age. It's not based on necessarily how long you've been teaching. It's about what you can command for your service, right? Yeah. You're an entrepreneur, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, there is an element of, of change and improvement over the course of, of a teacher's experience, right? So, so what do you recommend a teacher do to increase their skills and abilities over time? I mean, I love this idea that you have of, of the expectation that you're going to increase your rates uh, based on the expectations of inflation, cost of living, et cetera. But are there certain things that teachers can do to actually you know, jump up to a different level of professionalism uh, through continuing education or, or other, other things that they can do to increase the value of their studio? Absolutely. I think one of the most under one of the areas that most teachers don't correlate um, into actually helping themselves is volunteering. And volunteering is the best way to market yourself. And you learn at the same time. So when I first I joined MTNA, the Music Teachers National Association, when I was living in Washington State, my first year of teaching and immediately Believe me, they will be happy to give you jobs. So my local chapter, I started running. Uh, we actually created our own first Bach festival over there. And um, once you help out in an event, you not only know how to run it, but then you know how to prepare your students for it. And if you run it, your name is on every flyer, every recital program, and you get up there and you announce and everything. You build your own confidence in terms of speaking in public, um, giving criticism, you know, it's just, it's, you, you, you know, you really learn that way. But I was also very lucky. in when I first came back to California, I got in with this group of teachers and they were much more experienced um, than I was. And they kind of became mentors to me. And every Friday, one of them, um, they were very involved with the Robert Pace uh, program. And every Friday, and I, so I took that class to get certified for that. And every Friday we would get together and we would teach each other. We would, we would practice. And I said, oh gosh, how would, how will I ever be ready to write comments for a competition? And they said, well, let's just try it right now. I'm going to play something and you go ahead and just take the notes and we'll give you feedback. And so what I figured out is it's, 
in every workshop that I give now, I, I give comments to the, the students and it's all just like practicing for adjudication. It's really, you do the same thing. Now that I've been an adjudicator for almost 30 years, I mean, I realize it's probably teachers all have what it takes to do these things. They just need to have a mentor and have some confidence and, and practice it. Yeah. I love, I love that. So there's, there's elements to increasing the the value and reputation of your studio, but of course there's continuing efforts to improve your pedagogy, right? And to to become that that even better teacher and to hear things differently and to comment on things differently. So those are great, two really great paths to increasing your value as a teacher. I love that. You it's I just admire so much the professionalism with which you've approached your studio over the past couple of decades and what you've built. It's it's really inspiring. So thank, thank you for sharing you. all of those insights. I'm gonna close with a question that I ask all of our podcast guests, and you've kind of answered it already, but I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on your your most influential music teacher. I, 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 I have a feeling you're going to say that that first teacher that you mentioned, um, Joanna Hodges and her assistant, but feel free to answer with anybody that, that comes to mind, um, even if it's somebody different. What What made them so special and why were they such a, why did they play such an important role in your life? Well, you know, I've I've really only had I think is it four or five um, teachers throughout my life. I've always I like to stay with the same teacher, and they've if you don't mind, I'd just like to say a few things about each one of them. They've Please been do. yes, so special. So Nancy Perry Rohr, of course, my first teacher was so um, patient, and I felt very comfortable with her. So kind. And, you know, never really put a lot of pressure, but a lot of enthusiasm. And that helped me to kind of foster the love of music. And then after I studied with her, um, I was studying part time with Joanna Hodges. Um, we, you know, kind of with two teachers just to see what that was like. She was, you know, kind of assessing whether or not I could become her student. And um, with Joanna, her background was just amazing in that her teachers go all the way back to um, Liszt. And if you follow it, five generations, Liszt, Bach, Beethoven. But, and she, um, her pedagogy style was, I would say, more, more, she loved teaching Brahms and Bach. And she just opened up like uh, the technique was so specific. And she also was very into um, performance techniques like mental relaxation, preparing students to perform the way athletes train for the Olympics. And that was a huge thing. And I think it kept all of us very centered as we were doing international competitions. Um, so that was really, really significant. And I really would not have been a piano teacher, I think, if it's not for her. But then um, another significant teacher was Dr. Student is is Dr. Stuart Gordon. Um, he's a professor at USC, but I was studying with him because he lived in my area. So I was studying privately with him um, after uh, when, I think before I had my, my kids. And uh, what I loved about that is he brought all different pieces to my attention. And he would just kind of throw it in there it was before I was teaching. And he would say, you know, at some point you might be teaching a student, you know, so this is a great teaching piece, you know, maybe, you know, first arabesque, you should, you know, you yourself should study all the rock, four of these Rachmaninoff preludes. So for that style. 
And um, when I was at UC Santa Barbara, I was very fortunate because I studied with Peter Yazbek, who was a good friend of Glenn Gould. And he said the reason why he was a teacher was because um, he got in a car accident and could no longer do uh, concertizing. And Glenn Gould said to him, you should teach. You'd be a wonderful teacher. And so he was wonderful in that he his focus of pieces was absolutely opposite from Miss Hodges's. He liked to teach um, Ravel and, uh, and Debussy, um, a lot of different things. So it was, I think you put together all those pieces and now you get, you know, a, a full spectrum, right? It's, it was yeah. really, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I, yeah. I, I had oh, wonderful that's teachers. wonderful. And you can just tell the love and admiration you have for each one of those. It's a testament to, to, uh, you know, your, your, being so yes having such a wonderfully beneficial experience with all of those teachers so thanks for sharing that with us and it's just been a delight to get to know you a little bit better and i have such admiration for what you do so thank you for sharing those insights and tips and again uh, noreen's book is called the two-year wait list an entrepreneurial guide for music teachers and you can find her at wenjinpiano.com and uh, we at duet are are excited to be featuring Noreen and, and her products to our teachers. So check them out. So thanks so much, Thank Noreen. Thank you, Naylin. And I, before we leave, um, before we leave, I really think it's important for teachers to know that you really have to uh, budget your time. And the way to do that and to take the most advantage of your time is to use products like Duet. Because not everybody can do everything. If you're not a, you know, a super programmer and, you know, you don't have a great calendaring system, you need to have use your resources and technology to run your studio with ease. So I highly recommend using products such as Duet. And I just think it's important that teachers make it easy for themselves to spend time in doing what you love to do. And primarily that time is should be spent teaching, right? Yeah. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs>